it's funny that we go in there and he says, all right, guys, go into the Oval Office and check it out. I'm going, like, huh? So we actually went into the Oval Office. We sat in the chair that the president, the current sitting president sits in, and then we go get on the Concorde and we fly to England. Well, you can't win that trip on Jeopardy, boys. This is The Tournament Code. Before we get started, Jim, I got to remind everybody about the golfer's agreement. The golfer's agreement is super simple. It's an agreement we have with our audience. We do this 100% free, 100% ad free. And all we ask is that when they're listening to us on their podcast player, they leave us a rating, they subscribe. And if they're listening on YouTube, they like and subscribe. That way we can keep getting more guests on, keep having great interviews. As a reminder to everybody who's listening right now, Please do that. Awesome. Now, now that I've told everybody, Jim, let's start at the beginning. Tell us how you got into the game of golf. Well, my dad was a club pro up in Marion, Indiana, at Machingo Misha Country Club. We moved there when I was about a month old and lived on the golf course. And, and basically, I used to, I guess I played my first nine holes when I was about five years old, but I used to sneak around the yard and actually put Campbell's soup cans in the ground. And that would be my hole. And I would play around the yard. The problem was I'd go to the 18th tee on the championship tee and happen to put a can in there as well. So I did get in trouble for that. But uh, that's kind of how I got started, just playing around in the yard. And and uh, I had a younger brother who's four years younger than me. But uh, that's I just was by myself. I, nobody lived out there. The golf course was there. And, and that's kind of how I got started. My mom, who didn't really, we kind of learned together. My dad would tell her what to tell me, even early on. And that's kind of how I got uh, got started with that. He had some time, but not like he did as we got older. That is awesome. The soup cans in the ground is a, yeah. is a fun way to get into it. When did that evolve into playing more competitive stuff and figuring out, hey, I might I might like to play this competitively? Well, at our club, you couldn't play uh, until you were about nine years old. You could kind of go out with your parents, but rules were really tough back then. And, and even as a nine-year-old, you could only play at certain times. Monday was all day long. Weekends was a no-no unless you were with your parents and had men's days and ladies' days. So very limited until you turned about 15. Uh, and I just was out there. I mean, in Indiana, is in Kentucky and in a lot of places, I mean, winters are tough. We'd play basketball in the wintertime. So, but if we saw grass, we went out and played. And I would say, yeah, I guess I probably won the club championship when I was nine years old. I went and looked because I used to, what was kind of cool when I was playing, I always wanted to win as many trophies. Now everybody gets one, which I'm not for that at all. But I took the plaques off of all the trophies and I put it in a big frame just because you get those big trophies and, you know, my mom wanted to keep them. So I kind of put those into a frame and I just happened to go look at them this morning uh, to see it. I saw one, I think it was 1971. Because I was born in '61, I won the club championship uh, nine to eleven year olds. Uh, finished second a lot of times. I did notice that, uh, so maybe like a mirror of my career where I finished second nine times on tour. But uh, I just I, I love to play. I, I love that comp- competition, uh, and I think that's what was so great about it. And you didn't have to have you know a bunch of people together. And growing up basically on the golf course with no other neighbors was the only thing we could do until my brother got old enough we could play a little one on one basketball. Compared to today's world of junior golf, what was it like back in the 70s to uh, try to find tournaments and stuff to play in? That's a great question because there weren't the AJGA wasn't around until maybe my senior year, and I was an All-American on that, which was a great honor. But that was kind of the first year it kind of kicked in. But in Indiana, the club pros did a great job of having a tournament at least one or two a week, and you would travel 30 minutes or an hour, and you'd, you'd sign up for them. They had kind of divided into the north, central, and the southern part of the state. Uh, I kind of lived in the central part, just north of Indianapolis. But my mom took us to the tournaments. Uh, you'd sign up for them. And, uh, you know, I just love to compete. And 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 I, I think those days you met so many people. And there was one guy named Larry Gosswer who was the best player in Indiana, one of the best in the country. And I could never beat him. On and on and on, all the way through, you know, I'd get to the state junior. He'd find a way to beat me. And it just drove me crazy. Finally, I beat him at the PGA Junior Qualifier. But I just think that always trying – took that underdog role. I always did that. I did win tournaments and, and stuff like that. But there were so many really good players uh, in Indiana. And now their golf association is fantastic what they've done. And 
and, and the club pros. I mean, I think that's the key is having your club pro uh, like my dad or all those guys that were willing to open the golf course. The members are willing to open the golf course to a tournament and promoting it and growing the game that way. Cause that's where it's grown. It's not grown in professional golf. It's grown at the grassroots, the, the, the PGA pro at the local, uh, the local level. Back when you were a teenager and a junior golfer, who were some of the stars at the time on the PGA tour that you looked up to? Uh, of course, everybody, of course, Arnold was way was my parents' favorite because they grew up in Pennsylvania uh, and they loved Arnold and, and, and Jack came along. And of course, they didn't like Jack because he was beating Arnold. But for me, Fuzzy Zeller was from southern Indiana. Billy Kratzer was from Fort Wayne. They were both on tour. Those are guys I kind of looked up for up to uh, being Indiana guys uh, growing up there because I hadn't moved to Mississippi yet. So uh, those were the guys. I mean, just I would do this. This was, was kind of unique. And, and I had to play games like this where I would have a match play, a 64 match play, and I would play Titleist 1 versus Titleist 2. But I'd have 64 PGA Tour players in the playing against each other. And I would go out and play a match that way because – if I didn't have anybody to play with, I would play Titleist One versus Titleist Two, and it would be maybe Byron Nelson against Gene Sarazen or Tom Watson versus whoever, and I'd go through it until you got a winner. But those are the kind of the games I played. Just I hated to practice, I guess, because I loved to play, and we didn't have a driving range. Maybe that's probably why I didn't like to practice. We had an area to warm up, but I loved to play, and I wanted to play as many holes as I could because I felt like, I learned more on the golf course as far as hitting shots and keeping that creativity going. Uh, our little golf course had held the state open in Indiana a couple of times. It was real hilly, tricky, tricky greens. Uh, so I think that's where my creativity and my shot making really played a big part of it growing up. But I would say just, play, you know, just doing games like that. Uh, that's That was the cool part is the things you had to do to kind of stay kind of competitive when you didn't have another person to play against. There was one guy whose dad was a banker and he wanted to gamble against us. So we played for lunch. Well, I never paid for lunch the whole summer. His poor daddy kept getting that bill, I know, and was wondering how many hamburgers can you eat in one day. But those are the things. I played in the club junior, I think, till I was about 14 or 15. And one of the members' sons didn't like the fact that I wasn't really a member. And dad kind of banned me from playing. Uh, and my younger brother got banned at 13. So I, I get it. But that was kind of the mentality there is we weren't considered members. We were employees. And that always kind of struck me. The membership didn't treat me that way. But my dad kind of, I don't know, that was just his old school way of, of keeping us maybe in line. It was really kind of strange because I, I think as I, as I got older, it kind of, when even today, I always feel uncomfortable. Like, okay, am I allowed to do this? Or am I not allowed to do that? And I'm 62 years old and still think about, oh, I can't drive the cart that close to the green, you know. But my dad made sure to let us know where we stood. The members never did because 35 of those members were my first sponsors on the PGA Tour. So they never really did think like that. But it, it uh, you know, it was a good mentality. Dad would let us work in the pro shop and he would always allow us time to play or practice. He always did a good job with that. And we were able to save some money when we go, went to college or even played junior tournaments. And it was illegal then. But members would give my dad 100 bucks or 200 bucks so I could go play a junior tournament or an amateur tournament. So that was ways we funded it because he never made over $40,000 ever in a year as a club pro. So we never needed anything. We wanted things, but we never really needed anything. And, and so it was a great way of growing up. He had an opportunity to move to Indianapolis, and he didn't to take a big job there. And I think it was better for us to stay in that smaller town. And it's just a great, great place to grow up and play on that golf course. That is cool to have that upbringing and have that community there. You mentioned going to the tour. You mentioned Mississippi, but tell us about college. You know, going and playing those junior circuits. You were an All American on the AJGA tour in your senior year when it first came around. How did you figure out? A, I wanted to go to college, and B, I'd like to go to college uh, a little bit south of here. Well, I think that was the key. You know, Indiana, Purdue, Ball State had decent teams, but I, I felt like I had to go south to, to have the better weather. I, I did The SEC then isn't what it is now. Of course, it had great competition, but the SEC is, you know, arguably the best conference. Uh, some would say no, but uh, I would say yes. Uh, but I would I would say I wanted to go south where the weather was decent. I had offers. and I, I Back then, you got a letter in the mail. It wasn't an email or a text message or a phone call. Uh, but you got a letter in the mail, and I sent out a resume to X amount of schools. And it was interesting seeing the letters that came back. And and and, and I went to visit South Carolina, 
I was going to go visit Florida, but I was told by the coach they don't have, uh, I guess, scholarships for freshmen. Well, that wasn't going to work. So I continued on past Gainesville. But, but I just, I don't know, went to Tennessee and, and on a recruiting trip and they were playing Army and they hadn't won a game in years or 95,000 screaming people in a football game. I thought it was a cool place. They played a different golf course every single day. That was appealing to me. Uh, there were offers at other places, but back then it was so much different. Uh, Houston was the best team. They were collecting players. I wanted to go where I could play. And advice that I give a lot of, I guess, junior kids is you pick a school when you narrow it down that if you missed a trip or you get hurt, you pick a school where if you didn't play, you would be comfortable being at school. I think that was real important. For me, I wanted to play. Tennessee was not a program that anyone had really paid attention to. And I think that was so important for me to, to, to pick that school. My dad liked to coach and it was a great place to, to, to go. And, and, you know, it was not easy the first few years, but I narrowed it down to there and it got a pretty much a full ride. Uh, and we won the conference, won the SEC my freshman year. So uh, with a bunch of guys, no one ever heard on some walk-ons and some guys. And, and, and to this day, we have a fundraiser every fall and those guys are still good friends, even though we don't speak every single day. Uh, and I think that was the great thing about college golf is we kind of, you know, I stayed competitive. I learned to play in Bermuda, which I'd never played. I whiffed a chip shot in Bermuda and figured out that Bermuda was a little different than the bent bluegrass. So uh, it was a big adjustment, but played against some of the best teams and in, in, in guys in the, in the uh, country. Some of the guys we played junior golf against. But surprisingly enough, Georgia, who you would think would be a big rival with Tennessee, were some of our closest friends. Uh, and college golf was a lot of fun. We had some great friendships made through that. Uh, and we had a very successful program as well. So uh, I'm, I'm glad I went there. There's times you wish, hey, could I have gone here? Could I have done that? But ultimately, we were a top 10, top 15 uh, team the four years I was in school. So I was real proud of what we accomplished then. And uh, it, it's changed so much now. I mean, we took a van. You throw five guys in a van. That's a Tennessee van. It's brown. It's ugly. You got all this stuff in there. And now these kids are flying on jets. And and, and, and we would get a shirt for month, for the first round, second round, third. And in practice, we get four shirts and four pairs of pants, and you get one dozen balls and a glove, and you had to make it work. So it was different than it is now, but it's uh, it's amazing to see. It's on TV now. College golf has completely changed, and, and uh, so many good players, so many good players, probably better than we were. I see the scores they shoot. Golf courses are better, but they're better prepared than we were. They have all the technology and know how to use it. When you came into Tennessee, you know, you were an AJG All-American. You guys won the conference your first year there. What, what, what point did you start thinking, you know, I can go to the next level? Or were you just, or was it easy for you to live in the moment and just be in college? That's a great question. I mean, ultimately, our, my goal was to play on the PGA Tour, but I felt like I had to get better. And, and I had a better professional career than I did a college career. I mean, I, I got better. Uh, but it seemed like every other year, like my freshman year was fantastic. It was all SEC. It was honorable mention, all American. Uh, I played really solid. The next year I got mono going into the fall and missed some tournaments uh, and got kind of behind the eight ball. Then my junior year, I played really well, same kind of stuff. Uh, and I won only one twice in college, but I, I got better. But I, I don't know when I decided. I figured, well, I'm going to turn pro after I graduate. But my number one goal was to get a degree. Uh, no one had graduated from my family uh, from college. Uh, my parents put up a lot, take me around junior golf and amateur golf. That was the difference, amateur golf in the summer. You didn't get to play all over the country like they do now. You've had to pick your tournaments where I could drive to. We'd stay with families. You know, you may play in a handful of tournaments in the summer, uh, nothing like that. But I, I don't know, that probably my senior year, I felt like, you know, I want to turn pro. That's ultimately what my goal was, is to turn pro. But then again, you have to have money. It, it, but the main thing for me is to graduate and get that degree. And I got a degree in marketing, graduated in four years, which is unusual in today's uh, uh, world. That is true. There's a lot of 27-year-olds, 28-year-olds still playing some sort of sport uh, due to how things have gone. But you wanted you wanted to play on the PGA Tour. You graduated and you said you rounded up 35 sponsors from your old club. Tell us what that process was like getting getting money to go pro because for a lot of people that can be – Intimidating in two ways, depending on how it's structured, but sometimes uh, it's a portion of earnings. Sometimes people expect you to pay money back. And it's also a lot of it's a lot of weight to take on because trying to make a living is hard enough when you're playing golf, but then trying to make a living with the prospect of 
debt or or the fact that somebody has that over you can be a lot too. Yeah, I think for me, I was fortunate. Dane Bonner was my accountant and and really got me hooked into a great investment. He just knew he would set it up such that I could also put some money aside. But the guys, the, the guys and the, the members that put the money together were never intending on getting the money back. They put up, I think each share was $1,000. Some bought, I think, two shares. We raised $48,000 uh, for me to play and live on. And I did that for uh, my first year on tour is 84. And it probably lasted till I 89 and 90. I think I paid them back in 90. Back, but they didn't want the money back. So that was a lot less pressure on me knowing that I had money that I could afford. Because when I moved to Florida, I went to uh, down in uh, Palm Beach Gardens and I had to pay to play golf just like everybody else. I paid $35 to play PGA National, cost me three or $4 to hit balls. I didn't really have a place to play. And I remember Jack Nicholas saying, you know, you need to join a club so you feel comfortable and you're a member. Uh, well, that's a great idea if you got money, which I didn't have. But that pressure was off. I got my card at TPC Sawgrass, uh, first try, uh, six uh, six rounds there, which is a crazy place to have it. But I knew that financial backing was behind me, and I think that was a big plus. I finished 148th on the money list, made 21 or 22,000. It took 37,000 dollars to keep your card. So it wasn't a lot of money. Uh, there were some weeks you make the cut, your hotel bill was more. So. For a lot of guys, like you said, they didn't have the money. And we try to play in a pro-am and maybe get 250 to play in a pro-am. Anything you could do to make some money. I think the hardest thing for me is I did finish 28th at tour school, but I wasn't getting in any tournaments. I played two tournaments through May. And that was brutal because you didn't have anywhere to go. But I had that money behind me. But I think for me, that first year was a great learning experience. Technically, I lost my card, went back to tour school, uh, missed by a shot, and uh really didn't have anywhere to play. I had to try to figure out, all right, what am I going to do? And before the Corn Ferry Tour was uh, brought upon, it was called the Tournament Player Series, and there were six events. The leading money winner got their card for the next year. Uh, so that's what I did. I won two tournaments at that year, beat the great Kenny Perry in a playoff, beat Paul Azinger in a playoff. Or Actually, I beat Kenny straight up. He'll tell you the putt was 100 feet. It was about 45, but uh, – uh, but, I, you know, those are the guys that, you know, end up having great careers. So that was a place that I was able to get back on tour, played okay for a year or two, lost my card, and then had nothing, like nothing to play. And I think that's the hardest part because now there's a few mini tours and some tours that you can kind of play, but it's basically organized gambling. You're paying for your $500 or $700. You're paying playing for your own money. Uh, it, it's organized, basically gambling. Call it what you want to call it. and so. It was, do I go to South Africa to play? Do I go to Asia? Uh, and I just didn't want to do that. So I started Monday qualifying. Monday qualified a bunch of times, finished second Milwaukee, and got my card back that way with a few exemptions along the way. So uh, I kind of jumped the gun on that but I, from tour school to that. But I just felt like that was a journey that everybody sees. Oh, yeah, you won five times on a PGA Tour. You did this. That journey to get to that from 84 to 88, 89 was not easy. And and like I said, it took thirty-seven, thirty-eight thousand dollars to keep your card that first year, uh, and your expenses were high. You're paying a caddy, you're doing all these things. So, I, I think that was the toughest part for me is to not get discouraged because you got to the PGA Tour, you got your dream, you're not getting in any tournaments, and you're not playing to the level you thought you could play. I, my first event was San Diego. I shot seventy, seventy, and missed the cut. I'm thinking, dang. These guys are really good. Had I made the cut, I'd have been paired with Tom Watson the next day, which would have been unbelievable. Uh, but I missed the cut. I, I, I played another event on the West Coast, got an exemption from uh, at AT&T. Nathaniel Crosby gave, got, got me the exemption. He was on the board who we played college golf against each other. Back to college golf, he played at Miami. We became friends. Then I started Monday qualifying because I couldn't get in any tournaments. And that was the hard part. I made several of those, and, and when I finished second Milwaukee, I was a Monday qualifier. And it just – I think that made me better, uh, Monday qualifying. So I, it was never easy. I, I, like I said, I always kind of embraced the underdog role, but the confidence levels up and down and up and down. And I don't think until I got married to my wife, Sissy, who's won 12 Mississippi State Ams, played at LSU. She's the best player in the family, hands down, today. But, you know, she just – 
got me to look at it a different way. It's, it's you know, you have this great talent and I wouldn't have been as successful without her. And I know I've jumped around on that, but that, that was the, that was the kind of the journey. And then I won and, and, and the rest is history, but she was a big part of that. And meeting her changed what had been okay the first four or five years into what it is now. Uh, so it, it was quite a journey. I learned so much and you, you, they say you learn from losing and you do. We didn't have, I didn't, my dad was my own teacher. He did not, I didn't see my golf swing until I was on tour. Never saw it other than you see a clip from the, you know, the the local channel. Uh, I didn't really, I didn't want to know a lot about the golf swing. I I guess the regret would have been, I wish I'd have listened more to the technical part of it because I would have been able to fix some things that I wasn't maybe able to fix as much. Uh, I knew the tendencies, but I, I didn't want to know. I played by feel. I mean, someone asked me how I hit a cut. I go, I don't know. I just aim up here, aim left, and hit a cut. That's how I thought. But I played about a 30-yard hook in college until my second or third year on tour, I started playing a fade. A lot of that back to playing with Bruce Litsky, who we all know went from left to right. But I, I completely changed my game. I don't know exactly what I did. Dad helped me with it. Probably a grip change lineup change, but just, I, I was blessed with that ability to have that feel a lot of it going back to playing those 36 holes or all on that look off course in the Shingomisha where you had to work the ball and hit all these crazy shots. I think that was a big reason I played so much by feel. I kind of want to go back and talk about some of those Monday qualifiers that you got through to ultimately get your card. I know in today's world of professional golf, if you don't shoot 63, 62, 64, probably is not going to get in. Was that the similar was that similar back then or were was it not quite as low and um how did you approach those qualifiers mentally uh, i think that's a great question because you play a practice round with a guy and a guy couldn't break 75 you're going like why are you here and, and but he has this goal he had you know money and he could uh you know try to sign up for that i, I think for me as you knew you had to go low you couldn't make a mistake and it would take 66 67 68 just depended the golf course was weren't in as good a shape we we're playing with much inferior uh, equipment, but these guys are so much better now. I mean, you you said it. Trying to make a corn ferry tour qualifier, my gosh, it, it just is insane the numbers they shoot, and it's tough. And you're putting a lot of money up. Uh, that's back to having money. I mean, I I don't know that that's the route to do is chasing Monday qualifiers. I think that would be one of the toughest things to do uh, when you see a guy and you see the stories where a guy has nothing and makes it and then makes the cut. Uh, it, it's those are cruel stories, but I think for me, I just felt like I was better than most of the guys there. But I knew I had to go shoot a low number. And I think that was the mentality. Uh, nothing like today. Like I said, scores are probably better now. But there was pressure. I think the biggest pressure was that year I didn't have anywhere to play. I didn't know where I was going to play. I had nowhere to go. That's like, that's my dream over. Am I going to have to get a J-O-B? Couldn't even say it, you know. I mean, people do it every day. But I, I felt like I was good enough to do it. And, and if people ask me, do you have any regrets? Do you, would you do anything different? I probably should have won twice as many times as I did. But I don't regret my life. I quit playing at 40 years old to be with my kids. You know, a lot of it was I, lo- I fell out of love with the game. And I think none of us get into this game. Maybe they do now because there's so much money. But we got into the game because we love it. And I think that was what drove me in those qualifiers is I loved it and I wanted to succeed. I wanted to get that feeling. I mean, I've watched it my whole life and it it's not like this is the only thing I could do, but I wanted to succeed. Uh, and I think that's what kept me going. And, and I'll for, never forget, even with the Monday qualifiers, I got in the last tournament in Tallahassee. I had to finish in the top 30 or 35 to have a chance to finish in the 125. I did all that. And when I got finished, I could not count past 10 people to see where I finished. I was that nervous. My mind was just cluttered with like, did I do it? And I had to call a rules official and said, did I make it? He said, you did. I think I finished 123rd or 124th. Uh, But a lot of that was Monday qualifying, a handful of exemptions. So if you look back, I got on tour three different ways. I mean, got through the tour school, tournament player series, which would be like the Corn Ferry Tour, but leading money winner, and then Monday qualifiers. So I, I found a way to do it. And I think just getting beat, beat, beat kept me dri- driven. And I think it made me better when the pressure really came on further down the line. And as you said, you found a way to win and it happened when you were a little bit 
older, you gotten married already, it sounds like, or at least met met your wife. And I think you'd be right around 1990, you won the Greater Milwaukee Open. That's 29, yeah. Yeah, and so you would be yeah, 20, you've been 20. 28, 29, was, yeah. You've been right, right around there. It's just starting to kind of hit your stride as far as golf goes. It seemed like what was – what were what were some of the catalysts for getting your first win, and then over the next couple of years, you won a couple more events as well as played well and had some good finishes in some of the majors. I think that first win, which was at Milwaukee, I came from behind. I had finished second there a couple of years before, maybe a year before. So I kind of loved the golf course. It was the Midwest, kind of where I grew up, uh, and I just remember just kind of sneaking up the leaderboard. And, and trying to stay aggressive. And I think it's so much, I wouldn't word, use the word easier, but when you're coming from behind, you stay more aggressive, which was kind of my personality. Be more aggressive. It's when I kind of try to hold up on the reins that I, I kind of struggled. But I think for me, I stayed aggressive, got in, all of a sudden I'm going to play off with Billy Mayfair and Ed Doherty. And we get to the 17th hole, par three. And I was the only guy to hit the green. I had it about 40 feet, tapped it down about six, seven feet by the hole, and I, we didn't know who was out. And we called an official and I said, heck with it, I'm going. Well, I knocked it in and then they both missed. And there was some disagreement whether that was the right thing to do. But I still had the right to kind of finish. It wasn't match play. But I just remember that feeling that, wow, I did it. All those days and hours of hitting balls and playing and the dream, it's true. And nobody was there. Uh, my wife wasn't there. Uh, but they were. she was with my parents. And I was going to play in a pro-am with Denny Hepler in Warsaw, Indiana, Northern Indiana the next day. And I just remember all that right there, it hits you. But the thing about winning on the PGA Tour or anything is you enjoy it for that moment. And then the next day you're off to the next event. Uh, and I went off to do the pro-am. That was cool. And it was just, it was like, wow, all that work it paid off. I played really well the week before at the International, which was the uh, point system. I knocked it in the hole on 17, made a double eagle, jumped from, you know, basically beating two guys uh, to third or fourth place. And so I was kind of getting that momentum going. But to know I wanted a place, I think it was so I I had gone in there knowing, hey, I finished second here, I won. Uh, and I just opened up the floodgates. And, uh, you know, it was a couple of years before I won again. And and, it, it, and I think it was weird when I won in 93 at Anheuser-Busch. I had had, I never was really injured. I was lucky. But my neck had bothered me, and I'd taken a couple of weeks off. I'd missed a cut at Chicago the week before. I shot a million. I don't even know if I broke 80. And the next week, I win. It's just the craziest game. But that was really special because my daughter was there. She was probably a couple of years old, maybe not even two years old. My wife was there. I got to enjoy that. Uh, we went to the British Open the next week and, and got me in contention to make the Ryder Cup. And I think that was the cool part just that confidence. But I, I go back to the PGA where John Daly won at Crooked Stick, which was in Indiana. Of course, I represented so close to home. My whole family was there. I shoot 67 the last day, played with Arnold Palmer the first two days. You know, it was just a crazy week. My mother-in-law had died the week before. So it was really an emotional week. Finished second in the PGA. And, and just, I think that the win there and then just going on to Anheuser-Busch, just things started going. I started having confidence, like, I can really play with these guys. But I would say the Ryder Cup, hands down, biggest thing for my career, beating Seve in singles, being able to win and play well, not win, but play well on that stage, took my confidence level to a whole new level I never dreamed it could be at, because I did struggle with that. Uh, but I, I don't win the Tour Championship later that fall had I not had success at the Ryder Cup. So things just kind of went in that order where confidence kept building up on confidence. And, and you don't wake up with confidence. You can't just decide, okay, I'm going to be confident. Daniel, you know that. I mean, you, you've played. You guys know that. You guys have played at the at, at, you know high levels in college and tried to play as a professional and do all these things. And it's like, oh, I'm going to be confident today. That's just not how it works. Uh, and I think that was you know just winning kind of breeds that. And I think you see these guys that you know, on the PGA Tower Tour, the ladies on the LPGA, just winning, and they expect to win. I think that's a big difference in that mentality is they expect to win. Like, oh, I think I can win. I've only decided, not decided, I've only said it twice in my career that I was going to win. One year was, I woke up, I think it was in Greensboro, and I came in from the Pro-Am. I told my wife, I said, I think I'm going to win this week. 
She looked at me like I was crazy because I'd never had done that. And I won. Same thing kind of in Memphis. I kind of felt like, you know, the last event I won, which was a FedEx at Memphis, a young lady from our hometown was eight or 10 years old, was diagnosed with leukemia. She was a patient of St. Jude. I tell her in April, I'm going to win that tournament for you. And I go on to win the tournament. So things motivated me like that. Outside things. You could call it bulletin board material, whatever you want to call it. But when I won that last one, Thomas and Mary Langdon were there. They were young, two hours from home, the greatest feeling in the world. An hour and a half later, we're eating at McDonald's getting chicken nuggets. You know, so that was my last win, which is hard to believe. And I just think confidence was there. I probably had a better year in, in 95 than 93 when I won twice. But then those expectations, and that's what got me. There's expectations of like, oh, you've won five times. You've been on a Ryder Cup team. You played on the President's Cup team. You're supposed to play at this level. I couldn't live up to my expectations. And it wasn't from other people because they hope you shoot 80. They really do. I mean, they're hoping you can't break an egg. You guys know. Uh, they're acting like your friends. Oh, come on, buddy. Hope you shoot 75. Uh, but I think that was the hard part is, is just those expectations that I put on myself. And I strangled myself with that. Uh, I remember having Hal Sutton on my podcast. And I asked him, I said, you know, you were the next Jack Nicholas. And he goes, Jim, how could I ever play and live up to that? Hal Sutton was as good an amateur or an early on pro as there, there was, hands down. So good. And yet he felt the same thing I did. Everybody that plays this game, if you're not careful, those expectations get you. It's personal expectations that strangle you uh, more than anything. And that's the hardest part. And that's kind of what separates that elite. The elite player is an elite player because they have that inner drive to be great. And they do whatever it takes to be great, whether it spends hours and hours and days on the range. That mental ability to overcome things, to to want to beat everybody at all costs, to put that extra mile in. That's what the elite player is. That's what separates the elite from everybody else. It's a fine line, but it's that inner drive to be great. And it's an ability to be a time manager. Back to college golf. One of the toughest things to do, whether you're a pro or college golf or in your businesses you guys are doing now, is time management. And, and if you can't manage your time, you're not going to be successful. So that whole combination, to me, is what makes that an elite player an elite player. I'd love to go back to that Ryder Cup experience because, mm -hmm. you know, we've interviewed players that have won on tour, played on tour, played in majors, you know, been in contention in majors. But I don't think we've ever interviewed a player that's played on the Ryder Cup team. And for you to not only play on that Ryder Cup team, but also be part of the winning Ryder Cup team and beat Seve in singles has to be, you know, one of the greatest achievements you can have in the game. What was that experience like? And just what were the nerves like going into that singles match in particular? You know, it's been over 30 years since the Americans won over there. And that was my team. And half of my team is in the World Golf Hall of Fame. I would say this, and 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 I love telling this story because it's still part. It's it's it will ever as long as I still have my mind, it'll be in my mind. Is I finally made the team, and I remember we were doing a skins game, a fundraiser in my hometown in Indiana, and my dad was able to announce me on that first tee, the newest member of the 1993 Ryder Cup team, and that just gave me chills. Like, oh my gosh, this is so cool, uh, and that was in. August. So we got another month to get ready. You're getting all this stuff coming in. Uh, my golf bag does not show up. My Ryder Cup bag does not show up. I get a call from the PGA of America said, my bag has fallen off the delivery truck somewhere on the highway in I-55. Someone has found it. They're sending me a backup bag. So I actually, that no, many people know that story. So I actually got two bags and that bag is in display at Greenwood Country Club where I live. But we go to Washington, D.C., we meet the president. So we're in the Rose Garden. And, you know, all of us with our wives, we're in there meeting President Clinton. And some of us have voted probably not for him, but he was a golfer. And I was a fan. He was a golf fan. I mean, he was like the coolest guy. I was like, this is a president. He's a pretty cool guy, regardless of your political beliefs. A couple of our teammates had said some things they probably should have said off record. Uh, not like today because they'd have been gone. Uh, off the world, but it, it's just, it, and it's, it's, it's funny that we go in there and he says, all right, guys, go in the Oval Office and check it out. I'm going like, huh? 
So we actually went into the Oval Office. We sat in the chair that the president, the current sitting president sits in, and then we go get on the Concorde and we fly to England. Well, you can't win that trip on Jeopardy, boys. I mean, that was the coolest thing. Here I am, a kid from Indiana. You know, I, I'm like pinching myself. And we get off the plane and we land in England and we look over and there's hundreds of people lined up. It's like we're like rock stars coming in there. And I'm like, wow, this is pretty cool. Go out and play practice rounds and all that. I think when the national anthem played and you're sitting there at that ceremony, you're thinking, this is a big deal. But it's not till you put your ball on the first tee and you're thinking to yourself, what have I gotten myself into? This is intense. Your hand's shaking. You grab your other hand. It's shaking. The earth is moving. You don't even know if you're going to get it airborne. And I remember, you know, I played, didn't play in the morning, played in the afternoon with Lee Jansen. And we're playing Peter Baker and Ian Wisdom. And we get it out there and I hit my three wood off the tee. And once I got on the golf course, I was fine because I knew I was playing really, really well. But that first tee was crazy. And we lose on the last hole and I was furious because I'd played great. And we got beat, part of the deal. Second day, uh, Corey Pavin and I beat Roca and James five and four. So I get a point. So I finally got a point. That was so cool. And I remember the night before, I was scheduled to play Sam Torrance uh, in singles. And Lanny Watkins was going to play Seve, and everybody had the lineup. But at the Ryder Cup, there's an envelope on Saturday night. In case there is an injury, they put a name in the envelope. And Sam Torrance, being hurt, his name would fall in that envelope. He would get a half. And then whoever's name was on the other side would get the half. And then that player would then swap with the other guy. Long story short, instead of Sam Torrance, who pulled out because of an infected toe, Lanny Watkins, I, I heard this story last week. I knew his his name wasn't in it, but he walked up to, to Tom Watson, who was the captain, and said, put my name in the envelope. These guys have earned their way on this team. Put my name in. Lanny Watkins, man, he's been kicking Sevy's butt for years. So I'm thinking, wow, I thought it was going to be me. John Cook and Lee Jansen thought it was going to be them. We're the rookies. They're not going to put, you know, they're going to put our name in there. Well, now we go up. So now that next morning, I find out I'm playing Seve. So I didn't have to sleep on it till the next morning. And I remember at the church service on Sunday, we're sitting there and I watched this little man with a ladder walk up and he goes, Gallagher, Ballesteros. I went, whoa, got to be careful what you pray for. You got to be really specific, you know? And I remember the feeling like, okay, I'm ready. Nobody thinks I can beat him except my parents, my aunt and uncle and my cousin over there, my, and my sweet wife. Nobody thinks I can beat them. My teammates do. And that was the coolest part of the Ryder Cup because the Raymond Floyds, the Lanny Watkins, the Tom Kites, the Fred Couples all made me an equal that week. I was on their level for the first time ever in my career. Uh, and I, that was the coolest part, knowing you were an equal with these great players. And I remember that Saturday night, I've jumped around on it, Chip Beck stood there and they were going through all the feelings we had. Chip Beck said, let me tell you something, boys. The will to win will beat mechanical breakdown like I was having on that golf course. Because he and John Cook went on to beat, I think, Faldo and Montgomery that afternoon. to Kind of, we were behind, but give us a chance. But I remember hitting balls. Everything's normal. Walking out Sunday morning. And Raymond Floyd's wife, Maria, now she was tough. She didn't take anybody's grief. Like she kept Raymond walking a straight line. You know, she was tough. Loved her. Greatest lady ever. And she grabs me by the shirt. She goes, Jim Gallagher, I just bet a lot of money on you that you're going to beat Sebi. Don't let me down. I didn't have time to be nervous. I didn't want to let Maria down because, man, I, that wrath was going to be wild. Uh, they had the wrath of Maria on my tail. I remember going almost to the tee. Butch Harmon, who was, I think, working with Freddie maybe then or somebody. And he, hey, Jimmy, you got this. And I get to the first tee. And I hit a good drive. Sebi kind of hits an okay drive. And their captain, Bernard Gallagher, says, Seve, you'll beat him seven and five. Oh, redneck Jim. He heard it. I turned around to Lanny Watkins, and I said, it's going to be the other way around. His butt's going down. And, you know, I was ready. So the pressure, I didn't feel the pressure. I was ready to go. And I played really well that day. I beat him three and two. He was a total gentleman. And I just remember that feeling. Wow. This is like incredible. And he had tears in his eyes. It meant that much to him. And he played one more Ryder Cup before it was his last one. But I remember they handed me the champagne. I didn't know what to do with it. 
I handed it to Payne because I knew he knew how to celebrate. And he opens it up. They get on the front cover of Golf World, and, and, and I'm back there. And I remember the interview with Bob Trumpy, the old football player working for NBC. He goes, Jim, how do you like the Ryder Cup? And I remember because when I went over there, there was an article written, and it basically rated the team about you know, all the things. And, and they had written about me that I was uh, the kind of player you get with this system they have. I have the heart of a lamb. And the Europeans are going to make chopped liver out of me. Well, that ticked me off, too. So I remember Paul Azinger calling me lamb chop the whole week. Lamb chop, lamb chop, teasing me. And I remember walking over and he grabs me by the shirt and he goes, you are no longer lamb chop. You're the killer lamb chop. So that's kind of where I got this kind of a nickname. And I just remember Bob Trumpy talking and I was like, you know what? A lot of people didn't think I could play. A lot of people didn't think I could do it, but I proved to them I could flat play, and I proved to myself, more importantly, that I could flat play. I would have never said that, but I was just so fired up and proud. Yeah, I was – you know, I always felt there's a difference between being cocky and conceited, uh, and you got to be a little cocky. you got to be very selfish to be great. I had a wife that allowed me to be a pain sometimes when I was being that selfish person. But that week, I just remember that whole week being, it's just unbelievable. I was on the winning Ryder Cup team. No matter what happens after that, that was September. And a month and a half later, I win the tour championship. No way I win the tour championship at Olympic for 500, then 540,000, which is a lot of money. Had I not had that great experience at the Ryder Cup. So I got a little long winded on that story. I was all over the place, but it just, I could tell that story. It just, Last week with Paul Azinger at a Pro-Am, he was telling stories that I'd forgot. And I'd forgotten this part. Sissy remembered it. But Tom Watson had a clock. And it was a clock because they had won at Kiowa. And it was a clock about when I think the first tee shot was going to be hit. And it, and they couldn't figure out these little guys in the locker room, guy, you know, with their accents, English accents, what's the clock for? And it was like, or maybe it was the clock of when we were going to take the Ryder Cup home. I think that's what it was. Well, we were going to take it back home. And Watson had it sitting in there. So, I mean, different ways he motivated you. The, the, the one thing he said to us on the Concord, we're about to land, and he walks up holding the trophy. He said, Seve Ballesteros said that we're over here on this Concord, and it's just a vessel to bring the Ryder Cup trophy back. Well, let me tell you something, gentlemen. They may have created the game over here, but we have perfected it. And I was ready to parachute off that plane, going 8,000 miles an hour, you know. Uh, it was just the coolest experience. Uh, and, and, and I'm still telling that story because it's been 30 years since they've won over there. And I'm able to tell that story. And I got to work the Ryder Cup this year for NBC calling uh, the early coverage. And I did a little walking in the afternoon. And it's changed so much. The, the, the pressure. And, and my wife said, you know, the grandstands were there, maybe not as big. People were saying things to us. It's just so much different. And if they thought it was, thought it was tough over there, when they go to Bethpage in two years, it's going to be insane. Uh, it, it just really has turned into something different. One thing I'll say when they go to Beth Page, these people over there will be intense. It's been a long time since they've won uh, over there, but they want revenge. And I think the fans at Beth Page will really get behind the Americans. It's going to be tough for the. It's it's the, they ask, well, how do you win over overseas? It's just like anything else. Why is it hard to play in Nayland Stadium? Why is it hard to play in the Swamp? Why is it hard to play in Tuscaloosa? Why does Rupp Arena at Kentucky hard to win a basketball game at? The home field or home court is a huge advantage in any sport. I'd say in golf, it's two and a half points. And then when they get over there, they start chanting and singing like a soccer game, like a football game, as they call it. And you're starting to sing with them. I mean, it's just like, what the heck? Let me slap myself, you know. Uh, it's just, and they know how to celebrate win or lose. It's so amazing. Uh, to watch how how it, it has changed from when I played to where it is now. Uh, but it was just an honor to be there, to be able to call the shots, to see how it takes place. The Americans weren't prepared. They out-prepared them. They outplayed them. I think it'll be different when they get over to Beth Page. That is one thing that makes me really mad is that the Europeans always have some of the coolest and best chance that they come up with the on the spot. And I mean, this wasn't this wasn't golf and it's kind of kind of rude, I guess, to some people. But I remember when Queen Elizabeth died, 
I was seeing a video of like a Scottish team playing against an English team and chanting Lizzie's in a box to some sort of tune. I'm like, how did they, how did they come up with that? So on, so on the fly, whereas our, our chance, anything we have is we have probably one USA USA. Yes, that's about it. That's about it. What was the one they had? Europe's on fire. The Americans are something. I can't remember the one they had. And I started singing it. I'm going like, what the heck? You know? And, they get to the point where you actually almost like them. But you're right. My wife sat on the first tee because she's been part of it. She sat there. She goes, the chants were unbelievable. And I'm calling the shots, calling the golf. So I had I couldn't quite get them all. But just, you're right. They come up with it. It's like they all know what to say. I mean, we can't even put a sentence together. You and they're saying. all such different tunes. They yeah. have like all these different tunes that they got them to, too. And whereas, yeah, yeah we're USA or... Yeah, there's that one year that again it wasn't golf, but maybe some of the stuff carried over, like the "I Believe" chant from yes. uh, soccer. That's right. that's about our that's about our uh, uh, bandwidth that we can. That's about our bandwidth that we can do. Correct, correct. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's and I will say this: this year, five ten thousand people on that first tee lined up. I mean, it's the coolest thing. If you had ever been to a Ryder Cup, you got to go. It's just. It's hard to watch as a spectator the first two days because everybody's watching four groups. It spreads out a little better on singles. But my little wife, who I love to death, she got inside the ropes without the proper credentials. Now, I know she's cute. She's sweet. She'd been doing this a long time. But she walked up, and she had a picture of, of me and her with Sevy. And she goes, and she pointed to her ring finger, and he said, come on in. I was like, what the heck? I mean, they didn't, they, she, they, she didn't speak Italian, but she met the security guard and she walked her way in every day. Same security guard. She knew to go to the same guy. And I was just like, only you. She means she had an NBC, but she did not have the proper color. I'm going like, I can't even get in the rope. And I got credentials and you got in the rope. But I mean, uh, it was cool for her to get to watch it. She loved it. We had a great trip in Italy. Uh, the people were fantastic, but uh, man. It is something to be able to be part of that. It's my favorite probably event to go to and to be part of that. I was part of the President's Cup team the first time. It was cool. We won. But it's not like that. It's try, It's getting closer. But it's, a, it's the Europeans, it's in their soul. They've played that underdog role so often, whether they deserve it to be or not. And they just find a way of doing it. And, and, and. I don't know. Golf's a world game now. Uh, and, and I would say these young players from Europe are getting better too. They're a lot better than, than we thought they were. But I think when I was playing, our guys were getting older. Their guys were coming up. And then they dominated. Uh, and it kind of switched. But now it's going to be fun to see what happens. But the whole professional golf world's upside down. And I don't know what's going to happen. I don't have the idea what's going to go on. But things are changing. But the Ryder Cup is still special, and they're playing for a trophy. Uh, and I think that was the coolest thing. If you ask me, uh, it was the greatest honor to represent your country. I, I didn't need to be paid to do that. I guess I'm old school. I understand the, the I understand the whole thing that we're professionals to get paid. But the money you can make in marketing yourself after being part of the Ryder Cup team makes up for everything. And I think we're, we've got to be real careful. Uh, because golf's getting like every other sport, college sports, it's out of control. It's all about money. What, was, what did I tell you earlier in the podcast? It's about the love of the game. Yes, we play professionally. We play and try to make as much as we can, but it better still be for the love of the game. I think that's the thing we have to be aware of. And and I think that's the coolest part of our game. And we're, we're kind of getting away from that. A professional game is there was a cut. You're not guaranteed anything. You had to earn what you got. I'm not, Hey, I understand why people do what they do. It's about making money, but man, that was the toughest part. When you said all those years I struggled, I learned a lot grinding, try to make a cut, try to make enough money to keep my card. I think that's was one of the coolest parts. When you tell people about our sport is you aren't guaranteed anything. We're getting to the guarantees. And, and I think we got to be aware of that college sports, the NIL. And that, I, hey, I understand why the kids should get stuff transfer portal. It's just, everything's crazy. 
like I, I guess my problem is my personality, whatever the trait would be, is I'm a loyalist. I, I'm so loyal to a fault. And, and but I think that's I understand who gave me the opportunity. They're not perfect, but that was the beauty of our professional game is you got what you earned. That is true. And you mentioned a while back that, you know, you got what you earned, you played until you're 40 and then you felt like there was a lot of pressure. And then finally you said, Hey, I'm going to go home and be with my family done with this. There's just a lot associated with this that maybe you weren't ready for. Maybe you didn't want to have all that. Tell us about what that decision was like to say, Hey, I'm 40. It's time for me to, it's time for me to stop playing competitively. This is no longer something that I enjoy doing. I think bad play pretty much dictated that. It pretty much carded everything. I, I went, I lost my card. I think it was 2000. So I, I had one year where I could play what was then the buy.com corn ferry tour. And I got out there playing and I was still kind of burned out. My golf swing had gotten out of control, lifty. I didn't understand what's happening. I'd lost my confidence back to all the pressure and stuff we talked about. But I think the hardest part is when I was on the road, I wanted to be home. And I was home, I wanted to be on the road. And I didn't do a very good job of that. I was awful to be around. Uh, I was a pain in the butt. And, you know, my kids were still, so I was 40. Kids were still, you know, my oldest was 10 or 11. And I had four kids. And I was like, what am I going to do? And, and, I just didn't enjoy going out there playing. It was the mini, it was the minor leagues. I played on the big leagues. Not that my ego was, it's just like I couldn't quite get it together and I had to play a lot better than I was playing. And at 2001, I just basically got the mass. I can't do this. I can't go to Hot Springs Village, Arkansas. I can't go to Valdosta, Georgia and, and basically pay, play for what, not even what I was playing when I was first on tour. I mean, just playing for nothing. I knew what I was playing for, but it just was hard and I wasn't playing any good and I didn't have any status. I was still, I, I probably needed time off just to kind of get my mind back where it needed to be. And in the 2000, and I guess that fall, my agent had called and said that USA Network was going to get a, two teams together and they wanted to about doing TV. Man, I ain't, I got a face for radio. I never dreamed I'd be doing TV. I mean, I was like, yeah, put my name in. What the heck? You know, all of a sudden I get the gig. Kurt Byram had gone to the golf channel. So now there's not two teams. There's one team and I am it. So I had never done TV. I majored in marketing, not journalism, not broadcasting. I mean, I did an interview or two and basically we went to Florida and I wasn't doing studio work then. And they kind of worked with the studio guys and they look at me and goes, what's your role? I said, well, I'm kind of like a mole. I do a lot of damage. You just don't see me. You hear me and you see what I've done, but I'm on the ground and I'm not really, I don't know. It's maybe I helped me with some questions or whatever. They hand me a mic and that was my training. So I had no training. So I start doing the ground. I don't know, six or seven tournaments in, they want me to call holes, which is a completely different thing. Cause now you're a traffic cop. You're calling the shots. You're doing all this. I did that. Then I became an 18th tower guy. So I did USA for four years with no training. I did okay. There were times I got, I was saying stupid things. I mean, like you normally do. And, and I mean, it was Thursday, Friday. It was a perfect gig. I could leave on a Tuesday late. Wednesday's practice round, check it out. Work Thursday, Friday, sometimes get home Friday because I live two hours from an airport. I'd fly in Friday night or Saturday morning, go to church on Sunday. I worked almost, you know, I worked a lot of weeks, but I was still home for at least three of those days. I still could be around the kids. And I was getting a check. I hadn't missed a shot. I hadn't missed a cut. But I'd play once a month. And all of a sudden, I'd play pretty good a couple of times. You know, I might top 10 here and there because there's no pressure and no expectations. And then that wasn't going to work. But I love the TV part of it. Well, then USA got out of it in 2006. So I'm probably, what, 45. I've got to make a decision. What do I want to do? Do I want to play Champs Tour? I will have a little status there. Do I want to maybe continue in this? But I have to find a job. Golf Channel wasn't going to hire me. So I just kind of played a little bit here and there, tried to get myself ready for turning 50. There was a, a category on Corn Ferry where I think if you're 48 to 49, they gave like two or three spots. But it was based on money, not wins. I'd won more than everybody else, but it was about money. And I'd quit playing for, you know, seven, eight years. So I missed the Tiger money. Tiger money's kicked in. Jim missed the Tiger money. Great timing. 
so I just sat there and I said, all right, I want to play. And I think when I got out there, it turned 50 in March, I wasn't always comfortable because I hadn't played competitively, consistently. And I worked harder at 50 than I did when I was younger to try to get ready. And I just couldn't quite get out of my own way. But when I got in contention, I felt pretty good. I felt like I've been here before, but I struggled just basic decision-making, the basic stuff. I had stuff. I had worked with Dr. Richard Coop, who was a sports psychologist back in the Ryder Cup days. He'd helped me a lot. Uh, and that, not that I forgot what he told me, but there's something when you don't play for a year or two of that competitive edge, it's hard to get it back. And I don't think I had that competitive edge mentally. And I didn't let my, myself, I got a little bit out of shape that last in my late forties. So I had to work hard to kind of get back in there. And then I didn't get have status for about a year or so. I didn't have full status because it was based on money, not wins. And I had to go beg for Monday exemptions. And I got a bunch of them. But you play a pro-am Monday, practice round Tuesday, pro-am Wednesday, Thursday, three dinners. So you're doing all these things. And I was just tired by Friday. But that's part of getting an exemption. And lo and behold, I finally just said, you know, I don't know. I, I'm just not playing at this level. I'm 50-some years old. I probably need to make a little bit more money. Still got kids going to college. Uh, and so I called my buddy at NBC, and he got gave me a name at, at Golf Channel. And somehow it was a Ryder Cup over at Glen Eagles. I did the studio, which I have never done. Uh, and, and I guess I did a good enough job, and I've been with Golf Channel 10 or 11 years. So uh, I learned to do studio. They said, talking to the red, you know, red light, like talking to the red light. And I got better than I, I was that first go around, but I work very hard. I do a lot of research. I'm always over-prepared because I just feel like I need to. But I enjoy the heck out of it. I still am part of golf, but I see these guys are so good. They're so different. They're so they're in shape. They understand all the technology. Yeah, the equipment's better. Golf courses are better shape, but they're better. They're better than we were. I mean, there's more of them. Uh, maybe our top players were better or, or just as good, but there's more of them. There, it's just like you play the LPGA. There's so many great players out there. Uh, and they don't get. I mean, they hit the ball. It's consistent and controller, all the stuff. But there's 50 or 100 all over the world, and that, that's happened on the PGA Tour. They're all over the world now playing. College golf has prepared all these kids. They're playing in front of cameras. They're doing interviews. And college golf now on the Golf Channel or wherever. And it's preparing these guys when they come to the PGA Tour or wherever they go play, DP World Tour or wherever they go, they're prepared. And I think that was the big difference. I didn't know what I was doing when I got on tour. I had no idea. I had no clue. And, and I think that's – I learned a lot that way. Uh, like I said, I don't have any regrets about not playing. I wish I would have just really believed in myself more than I did. I think that was the toughest part. I wish I'd have taken those expectations off. I tell college kids that now all the time. I have a couple of kids call me and they're you know not making a trip or this. That's like, why are you putting this pressure on yourself? Have you prepared? I think if you go out and prepare as hard as you can, now you got to execute. That's all you can do. I think that's the hardest thing is, is if, if you're not prepared, that's one thing. If you've prepared, in college golf is not easy. They work out at six in the morning. They go to class. They play golf all afternoon. They go back and study. They have no life. Uh, I think it's real important, back to that saying, you know, where you would go, I think, to meet other people. I don't know that I could name 10 or 12 people that weren't in athletics when I was at four years at Tennessee. They were all athletes. Not saying that's good or bad, but you got to meet some people. I'm not saying you need to go join the fraternities because those aren't always the best things. Sometimes they're good. But I think for for my girls, uh, Mary Landon played at Mississippi State. Kathleen played at LSU where my wife played, my sister played. They were in the sororities. They're Kyle Omegas. They made some of their closest friends. It gave, it gave them an outlet of other people outside athletics. And I think that's important, too, is to live those four years because you'll never get them back. I tell kids, everybody's in a hurry to turn pro. Pro golf's always going to be there. It's not like pro. Well, maybe it's different now because of NIL and all this other stuff. They're actually making more money there than they are as pros. But, I mean, it's always going to be there. So don't be in a hurry. Enjoy those four years. If you're beating every – that's one thing, the advice I'd give. When you talked about junior golf, I didn't say it. 
my dad would only let me play at a certain level until I beat everybody at that local level and then the state level and then the national level. I tried to play in the state open. I think when I was 14, my dad said, you're not ready. I said, oh, yeah, I'm ready. He was right. I wasn't ready. So I think that's the important when you're getting kids to do things, get them in that order. Same thing with anything else. You got to beat people at those levels. And I think I think that's the biggest, toughest challenge because every parent wants to get their kid to play AJGA. Well, if they're not beating the kids at the state level, then they're not quite ready for that because they could lose their confidence and, and, and not have as much fun doing that. It's great to play at that great level, but I think you got to do it in stages. As you mentioned earlier, you know, you've went on to have a great career in broadcasting and commentary, which Daniel and I have both enjoyed on the Golf Channel. And one thing in particular that I do like about your commentaries, you're not afraid to share your opinion. But have you, has it changed your perspective on what it takes to play great tournament golf being on that side of the business? Yeah, I think so. I think some of our, my co- you know, sometimes we forget how hard the game is. And, and I will say I critique, not criticize. And I got it. The hardest part is to not get personal because there may be a particular person you don't really like. And you can't let that cloud your judgment. And the same thing with, you know, all the stuff that's going on. And the more you sit back, you learn. But I, I think for me, I'm not a big swing analyst. I think I tell you from the perspective of how to manage yourself, the emotions, how people conduct themselves. I like it from that perspective. But we got to keep up with the game. You know, the way we played it, maybe not by the way they play it now. I probably would say my game is more to the game now where you try to get it up there as close as you can, be as aggressive as you can. But you sit back and you realize how daggone good these guys are. And then when you try to go play, like I'm not getting to play much, and you realize, whoo, this game's hard. And I think the average fan can really relate to LPGA players because of the style they play, not that they couldn't come close. I mean, I see these things where a scratch player can play an LPGA player. I'll bet that LPGA player every, every time. I bet my house they're going to whoop them. I mean, that's the dumbest comment, like, oh, I can beat it up. No, you can't. No, you can't. Come on, get a clue. These these gals can flat play. But I think that's it's always out there. It just it drives me crazy to see that. But for these guys, distance, I mean, you can talk about the rollback all you want. They're going to find a way to hit it long. Distance has always been an advantage, in my opinion. Always. But all these guys hit it a long way. I mean, we talk about Coach Webb had the Tennessee team down at Mossy Oak uh, this past spring. I haven't played golf. I've been deer hunting. I haven't even touched a golf club. And they're all hitting at 300 yards, every one of them. I'm going like, jeez. But you got to get it to fairway. You still got to score. And, and, and I think the rollback's interesting. I, I, I sit back and watch him play. I mean, 10 yards to a PGA Tour player is not going to fail. It's going to hurt the, the average guy. We, and I think that's the hardest thing. we got to remember this game is about the fans. It's about uh, the people buying the equipment. They're playing every day. We're trying to make this fun. When I was growing up playing golf, it's like playing the piano. You really love to do it. You just didn't want anybody to know you did it. You know, you just got, oh, I played the piano. You know, and, and, and I think that's one of the differences. Like golf became cool. Tiger Woods made it cool. It's a great game. I still think we need to keep some of the tradition going because that's what made it game. You, you, we uh, we were a sport where we called penalties on each other. That doesn't happen. So there's still that integrity part of it. But as far as TV part, yeah, I I love to watch. I, I love to watch the strategy. There's times I'm gonna have to say, hey, that wasn't a good strategy. I'm not going. I'm gonna try not to get personal, and that's the hardest part. I think what I've learned in my roles is I do a little bit of everything. I'm kind of like a hybrid. I mean, I kind of like I do. I call. I walk. Call holes. Uh, I'll do LPGA. I do college. I do PGA Tour. I do this, do that. I love that because that keeps me working hard. And it's a little tougher than if I was specialized just PGA Tour. I love it because I still can tell. Maybe this is what I can't tell you what the guy's thinking. You can't tell him, but maybe what the strategy would be and watching the stories, try to tell the stories, watching these kids. That's the beauty of being able to cover college golf is we're now seeing the Obear. Ludwig, we knew he was different. We knew he was different. 
course, we called it, we, we said his name differently. It was Aberg, now it's Ober. So we, that was one change we had to make. But I, I think for him, I, I think the thing was, it was different. He was that much better. The way he hit the ball and the nicest young man. Uh, and I think that's the cool part. It's those stories like him coming through or the story of a guy, Ricky Fowler hadn't won in years. Everybody loves Ricky Fowler and for him to win. That's the beauty of of, 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 of professional golf is those stories. I hope we keep to k- telling those stories. It doesn't become about the money and how much you're getting and how much that it's the story of the grind to try to win. Cause ultimately that's what you compare yourself to. Majors are very important. No question, but it's win for me to win five times. It's a great honor. I felt like I probably should have won more, but I had a great career and I, I don't have any regrets other than I wish I'd have played, you know, won those tournaments more uh, and, and understood it better. Someone asked me, how much would you made in today's money? I said, I, I don't think you want it. Probably 40, 45 million dollars because I had a, a really good career. But you can't put it in perspective because I made more career money than Jack Nicholas. So put that in perspective. Uh, it's not about sometimes it, it's becoming about the money, but it's about winning. Uh, and, and did you lead the game better? Uh, the most important thing is your family. And, and I think that's the thing, uh, you know, the good Lord's given me a blessing of, of being able to do the things. I'm 62. I'm still in the game. As they always say, you're a blessed man. Yes, I am. I've got a great family. I got five grandsons. I can't wait to teach them the game. That's going to be fun. It's not going to be fun when they start out driving me when they're 10 years old, when I'm only able to hit it, but uh, a certain distance, but it's going to be fun to teach them the game. Uh, it's a game of a lifetime. You're able to do it at any level. You know, people love pickleball and they love tennis, but it's it's harder with two great players and two bad players. Where golf, you can still play on the same golf course or whatever. And I think that's what separates it. I hope we we don't lose lose that perspective. Absolutely, and I think that's a great point to lead into our last question for every guest. As you think about yourself getting older, this question kind of goes to you. Back when you were younger, if you could tell yourself as a junior golfer just one thing, what would that one thing be? Have confidence in yourself. Don't beat yourself up. Do it because you love the game. Work hard. Always be prepared. I think those are the things. If you can do those things, uh, you're going to be successful. But do it because you love the game. It's a game that will give you so much. And you can uh, – it's a lot of life lessons learned in this great game. And I think that's that's the, the best part of it. And it doesn't matter who you are. You're making great friendships. Uh, and I think that's the beauty of it. And I think that's what I would tell myself. Uh, enjoy the journey because it's a wild one sometimes. That is true. We appreciate you taking the time to join us. Where can people find you on social media, et cetera? Find your podcast as well. Yeah, the podcast is called Only One Shot Golf Podcast. Uh, you get that on Apple, Spotify. Uh, Gallagher JR GC, I think it's on X, Twitter, X. And I've got a private Instagram account, but I do have the Only One Shot Golf uh, Instagram account. You could do that, but I don't tweet a lot, but that's where you can find me. But go listen to the podcast. It's a lot like this one. Uh, and it, it have a lot of cool, cool guests. And, and, and it's been fun to do that because uh, you get to hear different people's perspectives. And I think that's where, you know, I think it'd be fun to listen to. I've had some great people on there. I've had some golfers. I've had Archie Manning on it. I had Barbara Nicholas to hear her perspective being in front of Jack. So a lot of different perspectives. Uh, and that's the beauty of our game because uh, it doesn't matter it, if everybody wants to play golf. Be sure to check out Jim on social media. And if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, remember the golfers agree. Please subscribe and leave a rating. If you're listening on YouTube, please like and subscribe. And if you're trying to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram at The Tournament Code and on Twitter at Tournament Code. As always, we appreciate you joining us. Look forward to diving in deeper to what it takes to play elite tournament golf. 